0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Rochelle Moulton.
0: And today we're going to talk about knowing when to quit.
1: Man, what a difference that makes.
0: Mm -hmm. Not not that anything we're going to tell you today will make it much easier, but...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Intellectually, you'll know that you're making a good move.
0: Yes, intellectually. So last week we started talking about kind of the opposite of this, which is Seth Godin's The Dip and how to decide to be the best in the world so that you know the the juice is worth the squeeze like you're gonna get through the dip you're gonna plow through the dip because you're on this mission to become better than mediocre you want to be the one so that's fine but but there's a flip side to that is that there are probably a lot of things that are going to a lot of decisions you're going to make or things you're going to commit to that make sense to quit and intellectually speaking, well, I think culturally speaking and in gut instinct thinking, that goes against a lot of cultural norms. I mean, especially in the United States, but I'm sure it's yeah. not limited to the United States of like, you know, quitters don't win and winners don't quit. And calling someone a quitter is kind of like calling them a loser. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's frowned upon. But you, but intellectually, you can imagine that there are, there are of course, times when people should quit things and it's probably and it's I would say always easier to see when someone else you you think someone else (laughs) should quit something it's like you know you've been trying to become an actor for 40 years and you've had one walk on part I think it might be time to quit (laughs) you know it's like before it's too late or you know me with music at a certain point it was just like okay could the writing be in bigger flashing neon lights on the wall than it is I don't think so
1: but sometimes it's quieter lights, you know, I mean, I think, you know, it's easy to kick ourselves that we didn't see the the flashing neon, but there's lots of smaller lights too. And that was sort of the point in the dip is that when you say no, or you quit those things, even the small ones, it gives you the energy, the time, the commitment to really spend your time on the big thing worth doing, the thing that you're, you're willing to, to work to be the best in the world at.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, so we there's a there's a book on this that I really liked by Annie Duke called Quit, and it is purposely the flip side of Angela Duckworth's Grit, (laughs) which I love the I love the symmetry of those two like, rhyming four letter words that mean the opposite. So there's a you know so Grit Angela Duckworth came out with this book Grit. I'm gonna say it was like maybe seven or eight years ago. And it was about the stick to that you'd expect from this entrepreneurial story, the, the myth of the entrepreneur, you know, like sticking to it and not believing any of the naysayers and getting through the dip and, and getting to the other side. Um, and so Annie Duke in interviews has said that, you know, she agrees with Angela that you should have grit when it comes to things that are working but if things if, if you've made a bet on something that turns out not to be working then you should quit so that you can free up your resources to go do something that might work have a bigger impact which is you know we're sort of talking about opportunity cost there where it's like mm-hmm. if you spend your time trying to become a famous musician you're not at the same time also trying to become a, a pro tennis player or whatever, or, you know, run a successful chain of laundromats or all the other things you could do that potentially would have a bigger impact on your life or other people's lives. You're you're kind of like pre quitting those things to be a famous musician. So you're always, you're always sort of making this decision one way or the other. Um, And she talks about in the book, quit. she talks about a whole bunch of cognitive biases that even beyond the cultural, you're a loser, if you quit type of thing, uh, really work against your, it's almost like this subconscious, mm, it feels like gut instinct or common sense, but it, it's totally irrational and it works against your rational mind making what is probably the safe bet or the right decision, which would be to quit something that's not working. There's a ton of them that she talks about, but the one that really gets me and, and, and even though I'm intellectually aware of it, I still have to, through sheer force of will, remove it from my decision-making when I'm making a big decision, and that is sunk cost. Mm-hmm. Probably everybody's familiar with the term sunk cost, maybe not. The, the idea of sunk cost is that the more you you make a decision and you start pouring resources into it, it could be time, it could be money, it could be reputation, and the more you sink into this decision, the less likely you are to be able to change course because you've got this escalating commitment. Every time you kind of, every, every time you take an action to double down on this decision, it's like you're sinking money or time or, or reputation into this thing. And the more, and especially the more public it is and especially the more outside of the norm it is, the harder it is to frankly admit it was a mistake mm-hmm. and realize the losses. So this is, I, I love the sort of market metaphor where i I remembered saying to like uh I think it was my it was probably my father, it might have been my uncle where they were complaining about the market being down, and I was like, Well, so what? just don't sell it like don't sell the stocks if the market's down, and then you won't realize the losses, right? Just wait and it'll either go down more or it'll go up, but you obviously bet on at one point, it's probably just a, a a phase and it'll go back up. So just wait, right? Why not just wait? And that I think is certain... Well, first of all, they were at an age where they couldn't just wait because they needed the, they needed it to be throwing off a certain amount of dividends per mm, They needed month. the cash. And they needed the cash, right? So they, so they had to sell something because the dividends it was throwing off were insufficient for their lifestyle. So they have to eat into it, which they didn't like. So I didn't understand that in the first place. But even... Beyond that, at a certain point, it makes sense to cut your losses and take that money and put it into something that is perhaps going to perform better. And it's like the classic poker thing where Annie Duke is a, a championship poker player. No surprise there. Where you know you got to know when to fold them, and know when to hold them, and know when to fold them. And and if you never fold them, you are going to lose. Like the big picture, you're not yeah. going to win anything. You have to make the, dis- the decision to be, you know, your money's in the center of the table and you're like, I'm not going to, you know, the odds are very high that I'm not going to win this hand. So I better cut my losses. And, and people just don't want to do that in real life or like normal decisions because of sunk cost, because they feel like the, when I was younger, when I was like, just, just don't sell the stock, they feel like it's, they haven't lost anything until they take the, the until they walk away from the table and they they, are throwing the towel or whatever metaphor you want. It's like folding is admitting you made a bad decision. You made a bad bet. Yeah.
1: I think maybe the market example is where, and I am so guilty of this, where you, you bought a stock, you bought an individual stock, and I used to have a handful of them. And when when the market was going up, I started to realize those individual stocks that I had chosen were not going up as fast as the market. I was better off in my index fund. But mm-hmm. I would say, hmm, so if I sell that, then I kind of have to admit that that was a bad decision and it's not at the price I want it to be. Maybe I would lose money if I sold it. But if I do and I trade it for, for this index over here... I'm pretty sure it's going to go up over time. It may be a roller coaster, but it's going to go up, whereas I don't know what's going to happen with this one. Mm -hmm. Selling that stock... Becomes really hard because there goes the image of the swashbuckling investor <laughs> making money, being smarter than everybody else, and yes. and I was laughing because this has happened to me more than once, as you can tell. I only have one stock left now, one individual stock, but it's it's even when you're just telling the story to yourself, you're not telling anybody else. It's still so hard I to know. bite that bullet, and then if you add in the um, the public nature of some of these kinds of things, it. It's understandable why people get entrenched in not quitting.
0: Right. Yeah. So the classic example of sunk cost is like, I'll, I'll see if I can tell it. Maybe at some point we'll get Annie on the show. She can tell it right. But the classic example is you spend 200 bucks for tickets to a Foo Fighters concert at Fenway outdoors. And, you know, that's in January. You buy those tickets in January. The show doesn't come around until June. And the day of the show, it is like, freezing rain and just miserable out dangerous conditions on the road and you're, and you're like should i go the decision is should i go so now if somebody this is
1: this is a terrible example because if you're a fan you're gonna go anyway
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe not you, can,
1: you cannot call yourself a fan if you have tickets for foo fighters and don't go <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, so let's say let's say it's um let's say you know you're gonna have a bad time okay you're definitely going to have a bad time so you either you either you have to decide to go or not go i think t- the the intuition i think is most people are going to go and, and to be honest it wouldn't be two hundred dollars for four flitters; it would be eight hundred <laughs> yeah. so so you're out of grand basically do you go or not go you absolutely shouldn't go like there's no it's not even close because you're not getting the $200 or the $800 back either way. So you can It's gone. It's, it's gone. It's a sunk cost. You can't get a refund. You're no refunds. The 800 bucks is gone. So now the choice is, do I want to have a bad night in the freezing rain and maybe get sick or skid out on the highway or do I want to stay home and eat popcorn and binge watch Netflix? <laughs> the 800 bucks is gone. So you're either going to be out 800 bucks and f- nearly freeze to death, or you're going to be out 800 bucks and cozy on your couch. So the, the, and the part of the reason why, or one way to look at the difficulty in staying home and eating popcorn is that you're forced to admit that you made a bet, you bet 800 bucks that you were going to have a real, an amazing night in June. And it turned out that that's impossible. So it was, it was just a, you know, it might've been a, a reasonable bet. But it turned out that, you know, the fortune did not smile on you and in, in no world. If you if you remove sunk cost from the equation, no one goes to that concert. Mm-hmm. But even like intellectually, I understand that. But still, <laughs> I'm sitting there. like, Well, you, and then you tell yourself all these stories. Well, I'll, I'll dress warm. It'll be fine. I You know, I've got four wheel drive. Um, probably a lot of people will bail. So it won't be that busy on the roads. So you tell all of these stories, even though, you know, you're going to have a bad night or it's it's. It's definitely not the night that you were planning to have. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you could see into the future and retrospectively say, you know, if you could, if you could like time machine to a week after the show and there you are with pneumonia and it was a terrible time, the band only played for 15 minutes because the instruments all froze. You're like, (laughs) that was, I could have had a nice night or I could have had a bad, I could have had that bad night or I could have had a nice night. Either way, I'm out the 800 bucks. So it's like, you're gonna pick the nice night. You should, should.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, the, some costs are just really, really hard. And They're when brutal. you think about it, with <laughs> yeah, and when you think about it with your business, you say, oh, I just put. $5,000 into developing this course. Um, and okay, I can write that off, but what about everything I said to my list about this course? What about the 17 email series I sent over the last few months working up to this? And now I just have to just cut it. What about all that? And again, it's every single time, I know it feels so impossible. It's like we have to look back at that and go, damn. that didn't work. Now you can do a postmortem, right? And you can do an autopsy and you say, well, why didn't it work? I mean, I'm thinking of something that I dropped and like, duh, it didn't work because I didn't do any freaking research to make sure anybody even wanted this thing. (laughs) Like, so, so I learned this, you know, expensive lesson in a way. Um, but I learned it forever, Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you get to that point. It's emotionally challenging. But the people who are most successful learn how to quit strategically. Strategic yes. quitting. Yeah.
0: There's some there's something I notice, especially with um in the sales cycle for folks who do bigger projects but have longer sales cycles, that I was always hyper aware of being being really careful of avoiding, which was getting emo- like emotionally involved, not emotionally involved, but just this escalation of commitment at, Like I, whenever there was like a, um, looked like it would be a great client, could be a great client, but it was just, it just kept dragging out. I would uh. be very, very, sta- I wouldn't consciously not, um, what's the word I would, I'd would be very hands off in terms of pursuing it. Like the, I would think about it as little as possible. That's, that's, the, the right way to put it. I would think about it as little as possible because I knew the more I put into the, the sales process, the more sunk cost there was going to be. And, and if it eventually came to a negotiation, that would be working against me. Because I'd be mm. saying to myself, Oh, I put all this time into this. I flew to Florida to meet with the people in person. Uh, I've, I put together reports. I've been uh, boning up on stuff in case for this client, in case I land the gig and I can hit the ground running. All of this, the kind of stuff that people who pitch do all the time. Like they'll, they'll spend mm-hmm. an entire weekend with their whole team putting together a giant 40 page, a beautiful 40 page deck that they're going to present to the client on Monday into like a beauty contest format. And. It's like when you do that, it puts you at a disadvantage when, when it comes time to talk Turkey, because you feel like you've got all of this investment in the deal and you don't want to lose it. You don't want to admit to yourself that it was a bad bet and it just makes it way harder to hold your guns. It makes it way harder to walk away. It makes it way harder to see red flags. So I would always try and keep a very loose, very light touch in the, in an extended sales process.
1: Well, it's even harder if you have employees.
0: Sure. Well, if you've got payroll.
1: Well, no, it's not even the payroll. It's the emotional thing. I mean, I've worked in teams like this for years before I went solo, where we're trying to get a big marquee client. And we're doing exactly what you said, not a beauty contest so much, but a proposal, an in-depth proposal, of what we're going to do, what's the process, what does it look like, who's going to be on it, what are the outcomes, and you meet with them. And you go through that whole thing, and you pour your heart and soul into it, and then you don't win. Mm-hmm. And if you own the firm or you're the leader of that team, you know, that's a, that's a downer. <laughs> right. And so you, you have to you know, figure out what that means. And again, it, I'm putting the money aside. I'm talking about the emotional piece of fully investing in getting a client and coming back with an empty bag.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, if, if we, the, the quitting piece, though, is if they started to negotiate with you. And at what point, because in that, in this case, you just, you get sent away from the table from a quitting standpoint. It's like, okay, we're at the table. At what point should we walk away?
1: Yes. Yeah. And it's really hard.
0: Yeah. Because you're still walking back with an empty bag, but this time it was your decision.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's how much do you throw onto the table? Right. How much, I've, I'm not good with poker, so I don't think I can use the analogy, but I'm picturing like the, the player with all the chips pushing them into the center of the table, <laughs> betting it all, yeah, right? Because you get to the point where you say, oh, okay, so if we did this... Could you add in um, customer interviews? Well, yeah, sure, we could do that. That would be like $50,000. Oh, you know, that seems like kind of a lot. Good to make it maybe twenty? And And you know, so you start having like those kinds of conversations, or at least the client feels like they can, they can host those kinds of conversations. Yeah.
0: Right. So we talked about something a long time ago that this piece of the conversation reminded me of. And it was the conversation with Paul Jarvis where he tested the idea for Fathom analytics with a tweet yeah. and, and like small tests, uh, listening tours, these little things that take, you know, not much of an ante in the middle of the table, not much of a, a commitment, not much of a resource hog to just take the next step to like experiment, to test cheaply and quickly. So you're not overly invested in this thing. It to me is the move that helps avoid, needing to quit something later because you're just not that attached to it in the first place. Oh, I've got a great idea. And, and you know, you, you tweet about it, crickets. You ask a couple of people on your mailing list, if they'd like to talk about it, crickets. You're like, well, you know, maybe, maybe you do a couple of things, maybe a couple of phone interviews. And you're just like, well, no one, I I don't know if I just don't know how to explain this correctly, but nobody, this is only interesting to me for some reason. Yeah, and you just yeah, and it's not like this huge public commitment that you need to like backpedal from or, or reverse from So keeping the, the testing small is is safer For the reasons that we discussed at the time, which is you're just not wasting a lot of time and money But it does help with the sunk cost issue because there's just not that much to walk away from So you've only got a few chips on the table. So it's no big deal. It's just like eh, it was an experiment didn't work out And if you keep doing those, eventually one is going to be not crickets. One is going to be take my money and people are, and you're going to be like, oh, this seems like a good thing to pursue.
1: You know, it's interesting. Whenever I talk about the listening tour to somebody lately, the concept of one, a lot of people are like, yeah, but you know, I'm asking them, I'm taking their valuable time. Like, I don't, I feel like I'm taking and I don't know. And I, it's, it's this idea that it's better to go off by yourself in a room and not bother anybody and then come back. And even if it, if it bombs, you did the right thing because you didn't bother anybody. And I mean. Yeah. And that's just that's just no. <laughs> the, the right people will say yes to a, a, a call or a, um, you know, some kind of an interaction. Maybe it's just email on your version of a listening tour. And if they won't, then it doesn't matter how good your idea is, then you need to spend some time getting these people to wanna take your calls and wanna talk to you. And so you get information either way, but I think the key is not to assume that going off by ourselves until we come up with the quote-unquote perfect solution is the way to go.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is hiding, right? So it's like, and it doesn't even pass the sniff test because if you go into your room and you dream up this perfect thing and you're gonna have to go out to the exact same people and ask for their money, So why wouldn't you Mm -hmm. do it first and just ask for a few minutes of their time when they could perhaps contribute to making the thing better for them, right? Or at least finding out that you won't be wasting their time later when you've built the thing. You have massive sunk costs and you're trying to sell it and no one cares because it doesn't solve a problem that anyone actually has.
1: And you can get great pricing information too, pricing information that can make you go, whoa, I should price this higher, which is one of the things I heard when I did one of my listening tours. Or you can also hear, oh, I think it's worth this. And you had in mind a price that was five times higher. So all of a sudden, you can't make the numbers work at that price. If you hear that consistently, you're like, eh. I don't think I can make this work. All right. I need to think of something else. But right. each one of those interviews that you did, you got a bunch of gold. And I know in my own case and a couple of clients, we used um, very specific comments that people made in the marketing of it, like in the sales page, in some of the emails, because you're, you're, the people you talk to, if they're the right people for your thing, will help position your thing for you right they'll give you some of the language they'll tell you why it's for them or why it's not for them it's just totally. pure gold
0: right so that that might be a good segue into uh, my next bullet point here so uh, so i've got so the first bullet point we sort of skimmed over it pretty quickly but like the cultural norms is the first one like like if you if you picture i don't think we said this but if the in the cultural norms thing if you think like quitting is for losers it's it's like maybe reframe that in your mind in terms of knowing when to quit. Maybe reframe that in your mind as a pivot because that's what pivots are. Pivots are quitting the original idea and pivoting to a different one. Maybe it's a big pivot or a little pivot, but startups do it all the time. And it's not frowned upon for a startup to pivot because just culturally speaking, they're telling that community is just telling themselves a different story. So you tell, you should try and tell yourself that same story. Should um, If you tell yourself that same story that you're pivoting, then it might be less painful to quit. So that was the first bullet point, is just like the cultural norms around it. The second one was being aware of sunk costs and, and through sheer force of will, removing it from your decision-making, if at all possible, it, to at least be aware of when you're succumbing to it, and perhaps proactively minimizing your sunk costs by doing small experiments, going on a listening tour, um, not over-investing in a sales cycle, all these sorts of things. The next one, which I feel like you're segueing us right into is, is what any Duke would call a kill criteria. So defining, you know, her, her pitch on this and I, it rings true to me is that humans are terrible at making decisions when they're in the middle of something. They're much better at making decisions way in advance. So, because you're not emotionally invested, you mm-hmm. haven't got the sunk cost yet. Right. So, right. So if you set kill criteria for the decision like you know if i get if if i go this many hands into the poker game and i haven't got at least a pair i'm folding or if you know whatever it is with the musician thing like for me it's like if i I go for two years and i can't get a song on the radio forget it or whatever Mm -hmm. i'm gonna kill it or somebody who you know flies to hollywood to be or you know moves to hollywood to be an actor and if i'm still waiting on tables in three years i'm gonna quit um so it it's it's much easier to set those things before you've invested all the time than 3 years later when you're down in the weeds and you have massive amounts of sunk cost and you can't you can't see the forest for the trees so the this is still hard if you, if you're listening to this and you're currently in the middle of something that maybe you're wondering maybe I should quit this it's very difficult to set the kill criteria now so the question <laughs> i ask myself in this scenario is If I knew then what I know now, would I decide today to make the same decision or would I make a different decision? And if your answer is that you'd make a different decision today, then you should definitely quit because it's because you're uh, maybe there's a reason that I can't think of, but it seems to me that if you wouldn't make the same decision again today based on new information, better information, then the only thing keeping you there is sunk cost.
1: Well, sunk cost plus the psychology of it. And because the psychology could also be the people who are invested in it with you. Um, true. It, yes. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's all of that. It, and it, it can be hard to separate in your head, especially that's if true. those people are really significant in your life.
0: Or employees and you're folding a business.
1: Ex- oh, yeah. Well, I know what it was like when I sold my business with employees. And that was, that was, <laughs> that was very, very emotional. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that was not a simple transaction.
0: It doesn't agreed. So you're right. There's there's a a bunch of things that could be going on there. But the fact. But think of how pure and clear this is. If I would not start this business again today, why Mm -hmm. are you deciding to continue? So so like another great one. I think I even did a comic on this one. Um, Some it goes something like this. The the dog says, "I feel like I should quit this. Or no, uh, this this business is is not going the way." I wanted it to. My freelancing business is not going well, and the snail says, uh, "Well, if you were going to start over today, would you start the same business?" Uh, the dog says, "Absolutely not." And the snail says, "Well, then you should quit and do something different." And the snail says, i sorry, I can't. I, can, I never can do this. I dog, can never the tell dog. the comic." The dog says, <laughs> "I'm not ready to make that big of a decision." And the snail says, "You're making that decision every day. You're just picking the wrong choice." So. The, the point being that every day that you get up and decide to pursue this thing that you wouldn't even start you are making a decision to continue down this path it's, it is a decision it's not yes. not making a decision
1: well and there's there's another piece in there too which we haven't talked about which is fear and the fear is okay if I stop doing this what do I do next
0: that's true yeah so it's have- it's and
1: that's what keeps people in terrible jobs and terrible relationships and businesses that don't fit them in roles that that just really are bad for them. It's that fear of okay, but what do I do next?
0: Yeah. Right. So if you're not feeling the opportunity cost, then it makes the it it increases the fear. So what do I mean by that? If you are it's kind of like if you you, you get a bad client pr- prospective client, they've got red flags all over them, but you need the money and you don't have another potential client behind them. Like they're the only Mm -hmm. one. It makes it way harder to say no to them, even though you, you know, that would be the right choice. Right. So it's, so in that same scenario, when you get a red flag prospect that comes through the door and you have 30 more interviews with clients this week, then, then you can start to feel the reality of opportunity cost because you've got, you've got, you're spoiled for choice there's so many options yeah. that picking the wrong one feels tangibly bad in the short term but if there's no other opportunity that you're aware of then if you're not you don't like i feel like most people i talk to when they when i say opportunity costs they kind of cock their head like what that doesn't make sense and it's is this is because i have so many people that don't get enough leads So if you get lots of leads, you really feel the opportunity cost because it's like, well, there's probably an ideal buyer in this list of 30 people who want to talk to me this week.
1: Mm -hmm. There's probably like
0: a dream client in here. So as soon as you see one that's got some obvious red flags, you're just like, no thanks, because that would be be low profit for me. It would probably be bad for the, the prospect. It's a bad fit. So why would I spend my time and effort on this thing that's a bad fit when I could spend my time and money and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, reputation on a probable, a probability that there is going to be a dream client, or at least a better client in this list of interviews that I have this week. So if you're, if you don't, okay. So back to your, back to your point of like quitting, whether it's a relationship or a business or a, a product or a project or whatever it might be, if you, if there's no obvious, alternative, right? There's no obvious thing that you would switch to makes it way harder.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But again, it's one of those things that through sheer force of will makes a lot of sense to remove from your decision-making process. Like if you hear yourself saying, but I don't know what else I would do instead, quitting the thing that you're doing now that you wouldn't start again today, knowing what you know now is probably blocking out opportunities that you're unaware of. So like you don't have the space to think of something cooler you don't have the time to interview people you don't have yeah
1: that's where the fear comes from it's like uh-oh right. it, and especially if you're if you're running at 90 miles an hour and you're going to come to a complete stop it's like oh, what do i do um i guess just two words genius zone chances <laughs> yeah. are that whatever this thing is is not in your genius zone Right. And maybe it's giving you some big old neon flashing signs that are cues to what is your genius zone. Or in this case, it's what's not your genius zone. So it could be the opposite. It could be, you know, 180 degrees, it could be 90 degrees change. But yeah, that's the thing. And that's the thing I find people are so afraid of is what happens if I just stop. What am I? Forget the money. What am I going to do with that time? Who am I when especially this was a big thing versus like a, a little experiment? Like what? Who am I if that doesn't work? And let me tell you, when I sold my firm, all those things went through my head. Like, who am I if I don't run a business anymore? It was part of my identity. Like, right. what is that? Who am I now? Or who will I be? And is that somebody that I want to be? And so, yeah, you really do, and not you, we really have to lean in to those spaces and sometimes just saying, okay, I have to stop this. I have to quit is a, an incredible act of courage that mm-hmm. you wind up never regretting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can think of examples, big and small where uh, I'm from my in my own life and in friends, family, students, colleagues, where in retrospect, quitting was the smartest, like so great. <laughs> so great. It was like such a big growth, like like a, a quantum leap forward. you know it's almost like yeah. um, shedding, I mean depending on how shackling the thing was, it can be like a huge weight off your shoulders. So like, I can I think of a million things like, like for me, the music thing, like letting that go was huge. I mean, just life alteringly better. Um, I've had personal experience and with a number of students and colleagues where we have sort of fired a client where, and, and refunds were involved and these sorts of things. And a hundred percent across the board, instantly, every single one of us was like, that was great. Like it stunk having to send, you know, that $10,000 back or whatever, but, but wow, was that the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. Instantly feel better. And, and then you're freed up and like that, that, that kind of stuff, that kind of like albatross project. I'm not going to say client because it's usually, it's not necessarily the client. It it can just be like a miscalculation and it's like this albatross this like weight around your neck and you can, you can just take it off. Right. Yep. And then you're like, whoa, it literally feels light. You feel lighter. Yes. And, and then all these possibilities, you know, that I, I like your point about the fear of not knowing what to do next. Like all these possibilities flow into that vacuum that's created. It's, uh, I mean, it's not magic, but it, it does. I mean, hope rationally it makes sense that if your brain is not, is not weighed down and depressed or like anxious or agitated by this situation that you're in, then, it's more open to positive things that you can look, look around and, and compare these new possibilities with this bad experience that that you're just getting out of and think like, oh, wow, there's like a lot of different things you could do. But you it's very difficult. It can be very difficult to see them it, when you're all mired down in this. Yeah, this like tar pit.
1: Yeah, it's it's you, you really do have to trust yourself. In those situations that you are strong enough, you are smart enough, you are talented enough that when it all goes to hell, mm-hmm. you will figure it out because everybody has these kinds of cycles, these ups and these downs, these trials where you think I'm never going to get out of this mess, but mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. you will. And that's part of really you know, thinking it through and making that strategic decision to quit Versus uh, a reactive quitting, right? Yes. It's like when oh, that's you're. Funny. It's it's like when it's just sort of um, you, you can't just be bothered to quit. There's that. There's that too. There's that. I think of it as like being a zombie. <laughs> Have you ever seen what that? Do you mean? No. But well, so so you you quit when it's painful is how I think of reactive quitting but you can oh, oh, yeah, also yeah, yeah. stick with it when you just can't be bothered to be to quit like you're lazy like I, i've met a lot of people like that in the course of my life where they're you you sit down with them and they complain about their job they complain about their boss they complain about the oh company God, say oh yes. have you thought about leaving oh no <laughs> what would i complain about then <laughs> Where would i direct my energy right
0: <laughs> yeah i know i get it yeah that's yeah that's a funny yeah go ahead
1: I mean, really, that's the thought is that it becomes so comfortable to stay where you are, that you just never get up the energy to actually quit and you just live Mm -hmm. a life of I don't even know what to say like meh. You know, yeah. it's just yeah. not it's not you're not in your genius zone. You're not contributing to the world. And by the way, this can be the same thing with a relationship, like a dead end relationship. And and oh, you yeah. know, it's when you you work and you work and you work and nothing much changes, whether it's a job or a relationship. And, you know, that's just keeping you from doing something better.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the reactive quitting story that came to mind when you said that was um I remember, there was one day. So, like, Cooper, my you know son is in a leadership program at the Karate School, and when he started school, school this year, it was not the timing was not great. Like, he would get out of school and he didn't have time. He had too much time, and he had enough time to fall asleep, but not enough time to really take a nap. <laughs> and so it was like it was. I was always waking him up to go to the thing, and he was. Uh, and and many times, well, maybe not many times, but at least two or three times, we were in the car. And he was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do leadership anymore. And I was like, you can make that decision, but not right now. Because it was like, it's the worst moment. Like he's just mm. tired and cranky and just emotional and like frustrated. And I'm like, now's not the time to make that decision. Like if, if you, you know, we can talk about it over the weekend. And if you really want to do that, that is up to you. But not in the, not in the, not in that moment. It's not, that's not the moment to make the decision. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you need it- some distance from it.
1: Well, yeah, that's wise dad move. And I like to think that as we grow and mature, we don't make those kinds of decisions in the moment. But, you know, some of us have.
0: Oh, sure. Of course. <laughs> we,
1: we've made a, a spur of the moment decision that we, we might regret later. But uh,
0: yeah, it's easy to it's easy to get lost in that. And which mm-hmm. brings us to my final point that I got from the book in terms of helping you know when to quit, which was that she recommends getting a quitting coach, which I think the name of that's kind of funny, but the idea yeah, of at least getting
1: like, <laughs> that's not a kind of coach I'd want to be, I don't think. Yeah. That's a, that's a,
0: <laughs> I mean, maybe she picked those words because it's kind of funny, but, yeah. um, but the idea of getting, getting input from someone you trust who understands what's going on, but is impartial to the situation, like they have no skin in the game. Yeah. And, and you, you might, you know, I don't, I don't think we talked about this while the recording light was flashing, but you know, you probably dear listener, you can probably think of someone, you know, who from the outside, it seems like it's obvious that they should end their relationship or a business partnership or something that they're doing. It just seems obvious from the outside. And maybe you don't know, you definitely don't know all the details, but that might put you in a better position than them. Because you're not wrestling with sunk costs, and you're, you know, like you said before, Rochelle, like the the person who's complaining about their job or their business, all every time you talk to them, it might be super obvious to someone from the outside who's not got all the cognitive biases that the the potential quitter might have. So you, you can, as as an outsider, I'm imagining the listener. I certainly have had the experience of feeling like, huh, I wonder what you know this person probably should quit, like you know, or at least at least <laughs> consider it, and. And if you've had that experience, then you probably, then you, you recognize that it might, when the tables are turned, it probably would help to talk to someone who's not emotionally invested in the decision Yes, and can have some clarity around, you know, or at least talk you through like, well, what, what is the expected future value of staying the course? You know, knowing what you know now, what's the expected future value? Would you start this today? If you knew then what you know now? Or would you start this today knowing what you know now? Um,
1: and I just want to add a piece there, though. I want to make sure it's not just money. It's also how you spend your time, how you feel about it, the impact you're making. So it's not just the money.
0: Right. It's all of the. It's all the things. What, what really would be the fallout if you did quit this? It, it's been my experience that that the fallout is a lot less than you think it's going to be when you quit something. Like no one cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. By and large, no one cares. Um, certainly no one cares as much as you think they're going to in your head. Uh, so someone who you trust, who's familiar with the details would per- perhaps be a good person to talk to. She even mentions a therapist and, you know, depending on the kind of quit you're talking about, uh, therapists can yeah. be really good for this, uh, sort of thing to help you think it through. But, um, yeah. So, you know, getting outside input, setting kill criteria in advance, forcing yourself to ignore sunk costs when evaluating the decision and trying to inoculate yourself from the cultural pull, the gravitational pull of like never quit anything. I mean, that list of things, I think if, I think that is a really good summary of the tools, at least that, uh, in this case, the author would bring to bear on a situation. And I, I don't know. I, I I don't know if this is specific enough to be helpful yet. Do we have, do you feel like, Can we come up with maybe some examples? I feel like this is still kind of high level and hand wavy.
1: Well, yeah, I'm thinking of a friend of mine and um, in terms of cultural things. And she said, my family um, gathered rocks on vacation and we thought that was fun. And, you know, basically she talked about when they would go on vacation, they would work really, really physically hard. They would, I think it was on uh, some kind of mission kind of um, Mm. trips. And so... It's always been interesting to me that it was really hard for her to quit things. Like it was super, super hard. And I saw it, you know, as a friend, I just saw it rolling out into behaviors where you might accept things that you wouldn't otherwise. Like, let's take an example. A client starts to ask you to do things that you really don't want to do. They're not in your genius zone, or you're doing them and you're not charging what they really cost you, um, or you can't sleep at night. You have some kind of anxiety from the work that you're creating, or you have this big gnawing, is that all there is? And, you know, we, we talked to Seth Godin about, you know, the song of significance. And now for a lot of people, after they've been doing this for a while, they might have this struggle. I shouldn't say this, whatever they're doing, that they, they're thinking about quitting. They might say, hmm, can I really have the impact in the world that I want to have with this? Is this how I derive my significance in the work sphere or the personal sphere. It's those kinds of questions, I think. And when you can that's why I think therapists are so helpful with this. You can say, oh yeah, we move giant boulders on our vacations. No wonder why I don't quit anything. I think it's supposed to be hard. And the harder it is, the better it is. Of course I'm not gonna quit. <laughs> so you know when you understand culturally where you come from and how you're how you're feeling about these things that you're deciding whether to quit or not. I, I think it's really important to understand all those pieces and to have your eye firmly on the ball. And by that, I mean you don't have to know what it is that you want ne- next. You just have to know that this is not it, this thing that you're mm. doing. It's not it.
0: Yeah, that that brings up a a, a nuance from the book that I think is interesting and perhaps applies, which is that there are certain things – that it's sort of easier there's sort of like really specific goals and then there's these sort of more specific they're still specific but they're much broader they have more latitude to them so like a a classic example is like you know i want to be an olympic sprinter right i I want to you know get the the 440 or whatever i don't know any races for i don't know (laughs) i can't think of a race they do Um, meters now 400 meters but 400 meters okay let's say that's a thing like I, I want to be an Olympic athlete that runs the 400 meters. It's like, it's like, that's a very, that one would be very easy to kill because there's only, there's a very small number of paths to that. So it would be very easy to set kill criteria. So, So like, like, you know, if you're not running, you could just do the research. Like what are the baseline? What is the baseline experience for people that have made it to that level in the past? Like, you know, they were running a, a four minute mile in high school or something, or by age, whatever. And the, there's just not that many paths to that goal because it's, it's, it's a more finite kind of game, but the more infinite game type stuff, like I want to have, I want to put a dent in the universe. Well, that's okay. Great. There's like a million ways you could do that potentially. So with some, with a, with a more, it's that's specific in a certain sense. Like it, it's like, It's kind of specific in the sense of the other, the things it leaves out, like that's, that's very different from, I want to become a billionaire. Like Mm -hmm. that might come from putting a dent in the universe, but that's not the goal. If the goal is to, you know, whatever the goal is, put a dent in the universe, there's like the opportunity cost thing starts to crop up. It's like, well, how am I going to do that? Which path do I take? There's like, I can see three paths in front of me that could potentially lead there what can I do to test the different things? There's very, very difficult to baseline something like that. There's a lot of flexibility in how you do that. So pivoting, let's call it pivoting on your way to that ultimate goal. becomes a necessity, right? So like there's, so Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to illustrate here is there's like, there are different types of goals. Some have an extremely small number of paths to reach them. And some have tons of ways to reach them. And the, the ones that have the small path, the Olympic thing is uh, probably much more straightforward to quit because you can say like the kill criteria is so obvious, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's measurable, s- super obvious, right? If you do it, right? Like if you just, if you, if you let go of a myth of like, you know, winners don't quit, it's like, yeah, but I'm never going to make it in the NBA, right? So like, if that's my dream, it's not going to happen. Right? there's just no in, in no universe is that going to happen so if i were constantly like you know i don't know training for that or something and like and all of my friends would be like dude give it up you know or like uh, in the book she she gives the example of muhammad ali and you know how he just he just he kept fighting for way too long and like the 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 the, the downside was is obvious or was obvious was, yeah. versus someone like seinfeld who quit at the top of his game Because he's because his kill criteria, whether he said it in advance or not, his kill criteria was obvious to him, which was like, we're right at that point where we are. I don't think he would have said phoning it in, but he's done some really good interviews about how he he quit that show at the peak of popularity. And he was like, because I can't remember what his kill criteria was, but he had one. He was like, and it was like they were going to start phoning it in or um, there was something that happened and he was just like, nah, this is it. Nine seems like a good number. <laughs> <laughs> Chappelle did it. Um, a lot of like very... And and if you hear his story about it, he was like... When he quit the Chappelle show, he was like, that was career suicide. He left the country because everybody was telling him he was crazy. Uh, he just... He went on a, like a retreat basically to get away from everybody and uh, comes back and gets like, I don't know, $20 million deal from Netflix or something. So anyway, the point... I guess the point I'm making here is like the... The type of goal that you have can make it easier or harder to know what the kill criteria is or are. And 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 I think also having a broader goal makes the pivoting, it makes the quitting less and the pivoting more. So it feels more like pivoting than quitting, where you're kind of like iterating toward the goal. Like I'm doing like a yeah. big squiggle with my hand, like a big up and down squiggle, but the squiggle is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And, smaller, and then it's like straight line to the goal where each one of those turns in the squiggle is like uh, a pivot or a quit of a, you know, you found yourself in a dead end or a cul-de-sac and you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to back out of here. And it's not, it's not efficient. I I think the, maybe that, I wonder if yeah, that's
1: the kind. thing, is that I think there is a value judgment a lot of us make that, oh, it should be easier. It should be. I look at so-and-so and so-and-so, and it was easy for them. They're there, and they're 25 years old, and they're where I want to be at 40. You know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But they're, it doesn't work that way for for almost almost no one gets it on the first try. Like figures it out mm. and just has a pretty straightforward trajectory. You know, still having some roller coasters but not like the really lows. <sighs> you know, it's it's human. It's the human experience to have this continue, to have to keep I like your the way you talked about the pivot. I think that's what it is. I think we tend to think of a pivot as being this sharp turn, but it doesn't have to be super sharp. It could be a 45 degree turn right? That mm-hmm. you, you're just saying no to some of the things that you did. And you're saying a bigger yes to the things that you want to move forward. That's what this is. It's an iterative process. And that probably makes it sound um, really hard. Um, and some days it is. And other days, you just take a leap forward. And you're like, Oh, my God, all that time I spent navel gazing, trying to decide what to do next. It's all come together. And I see it now. This is it. Mm. Here's the leap. Witnessing that's amazing.
0: That does kind of tie into a common theme here, which is sort of the other side of the coin where, where there's this type of, it's like a mindset where folks want to know something's going to work before they decide to do it. So it's, it's almost mm. like they're hypersensitive to sunk cost and they don't want to take any risk. So like, I need to know like this, I need, this happens all the time with lots of people with positioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially yeah. if especially the if, if they're trying to specialize on a particular target market, and they're like, but I don't know if this is the right target market. And I'm like, yeah, correct. You don't. <laughs> 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 so how are we going to find out? Yeah. And well, I don't want to waste all this time, you know, researching plastic surgeons if that's not going to be the right fit. It's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. Like, there's no directory of like this is the perfect fit for you. You need to kind of do these small experiments. You need to do something to find out. And it's a common question and it's like a, a reasonable question that I get. And I, I historically have not been great at this, but I think reading this book and having this conversation will make it better, which is how this is a totally reasonable question. Well, let's say, well, how long will it take before I know if this is a good specialization for me or a positioning statement for me or a niche for me? And a lot of times I'll answer that with like a range of months. It's like, oh, you'll know when you know, or you'll, you know, but I think w- the A better answer would be, "Well, what's the kill criteria? and have that person define for them selves instead of me imposing on them, but have them define for themselves how long is too long or what what does traction look like like I know like when I see traction, I see it like people are getting like increased number of DMS on LinkedIn after they change their headline or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, all of a sudden I'm getting all these connection requests. Like that seems like traction to me or I'm getting, you know, a whole bunch of people are sharing my stuff or I started getting uh, requests to speak at conferences, like total inbound. Hey, do you want to speak at this conference type stuff? It's like, that all looks like traction to me. How long do I wait until that happens? And it's like, well, in the past I would be like, ah, you know, Sometimes it's very quickly, other times it's more like six months, sometimes it can take, you know, longer, but it does, that doesn't matter. I'm realizing now that doesn't matter. What matters is you tell me how long you wanna try. You tell me how you're going to measure traction or lack of traction. And then I could be their quick coach. <laughs> you said that yeah. you were gonna you're gonna sink this much effort into this and if the time period if this time period elapsed without X or Y happening then uh pivot.
1: Yeah, because I I'm thinking when I think about clients I've worked with, it's I can usually tell if it's gonna happen fast. And it's it tends to happen faster if the pivot is a culmination of so many other things that they've done that it's it's like the thing that they always wanted to do but never said out loud. Those tend to come really fast. But I've also seen Um, it happened really fast with somebody who's new to the space because they have a fresh set of eyes and they're calling out the things that the people who've been in the space don't. Mm -hmm. And those are often the folks who tend to have a little bit of um, uh, imposter syndrome and it's like the first thing I want to do is go wipe that away because you are out there talking about things that other people are not talking about, and you're get, you're seeing this kind of reaction. So right. it's just it's it's so much as possible if we allow ourselves not to stick with everything that we start.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I wish it was as simple as saying. I mean, I think this is important to say. Like, you have permission to quit. You can. It's like an option. It's always an option on the table. Always. There might be consequences that might be emotional, might be reputation, might be financial, but it's always a choice. It's like always one of the options on the table. And you've got permission to, I'm hereby give you permission to quit. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Here's your not, permission slip. <laughs> yeah, you're not a bad person. Right. So uh, that the combination of the, uh, you know, quitters don't win and the sunk cost stuff is, to me, is like a brutal one two punch that routinely routinely encourages people to stick with things for too long.
1: I, you know, mic drop. Let's,
0: <laughs> l-
1: let's stop it there.
0: Oh, look, we're at 58 minutes. Like my mouth just automatically goes for 60 minutes every time. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. That's weird. Uh, cool. All right, folks. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Rochelle Moulton.
0: And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye.
1: Bye-bye.